Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. Today is Sunday, September 18th, 2022, and I'm about 12 hours behind my normal publishing time, but here we are. Yesterday, when I would have typically been working out the kinks and getting the episode ready for publishing, I was given a choice that wasn't really a choice. I was blessed to welcome my new grandson into the world, and so, as much as I love this endeavor, I chose to be with my family, and you can see why it was not really a choice. I'm absolutely positive that no one will think poorly of me for wanting to be present for that momentous event. To witness a miracle of a new life coming into the world, it's just uh, it's awe-inspiring. Uh, in that little boy lies so much potential, so much joy, well, possibly sorrow at some point or another, unfortunately. But the whole spectrum of human existence bundled up in one tiny little package again and again a universe within a universe amazing humbling and surprisingly uh, apropos because today we're talking about identity talking about what it means to utter the strange nomenclature ascribed to ourselves in one simple letter the incomprehensibly complex concept i this is episode 35 of the Subtle Kane podcast. Who are you? Who am I? It's a question we all ask ourselves. We spend our lives, in part, always trying to find out what it means to be us. Of course, there's a difference between searching for that answer so that we can realize our potential and the kind of narcissistic navel-gazing that we so often see from people who are so engrossed in themselves that they seem to be uninterested in who anyone else is. We should separate those things. Like our friend Froda said, there's a balance to be maintained. And I've been thinking about this lately. And when I look at the world through the lens of a real human in-person interactions on a genuine and intimate level, I see people grasping for a sense of self, hoping beyond hope that they will become something, someone who they know they can be. We catch glimpses of the people we aspire to be, but it's through a glass darkly. When I see the way people present themselves online and in person, there often seems to be more of a projection of something they believe others want to see from them, rather than what they really believe is the ideal version of themselves. So we'll kind of go through We'll kind of go through that in general. Identity. Essentially, our identity is comprised of the particularities that set us apart from others, or an other with a capital O. It's an existential question. Who am I? A question that demands an answer from us in our daily lives. The reason why I bring this up is that so we can maybe pause for a second, take a step back, set aside all the turmoil and circumstances that are impressed upon us by the various forms of influence that we engage with, 
I understand the irony of asking you to listen to this while simultaneously asking you to set it all aside, but perhaps you will indulge me this short thought experiment. The word identity is is bandied about quite loosely in popular culture. In the lecture halls of universities, the workplace, the church, and the schools. And it's used quite a bit on social media as well. We'll get back to that. The particular set of characteristics, experiences, memories, and genetics that come together with untold conscious and unconscious stimuli throughout our lives form the ever-changing dynamic composition that we call I. That's certainly true, and it does define us to some extent, but it does not go far enough because the person we are is never the same person as we ought to be, and, and we all know it. Humans are always aiming at something and never quite hitting the bullseye. Anyone who really believes they have become the ideal version of themselves ought to probably be placed in a safe and secure facility until they are cured of their delusions. In his book Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton says this when responding to an acquaintance on the topic of people believing in themselves. Quote, Shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. He makes a very convincing argument that the more one believes in themselves, the less in touch they are with reality. That's a shamefully abrupt rendition of his argument, really. But Mr. Chesterton was a very wordy man, and this is a just a simple podcast. So I'll summarize it in that way while encouraging you to read his book. It's chapter two of Orthodoxy, The Maniac, where I quoted that from. So let's go back to what I was saying about the difference between navel-gazing and true introspection, and the distance between who we ought to be and who we are. There's an awful lot of very confident voices being projected into the ether these days, and I don't know if that's definitively a result of the hyperpolarized society that we live in, or if the hyperpolarization of society is a result of the confident people having a bigger stage on which to proclaim their confidence. Somewhat of a who came first, the chicken or the egg situation. In either case, or in neither case for that matter, I believe that we have witnessed a stark increase in the volume of the voices who Chesterton might call maniacs. When I speak to co-workers, friends, family, or acquaintances, I'm often struck by the conviction I sense behind a whole spectrum of topics ranging from politics to the apocalypse, addiction to COVID restrictions, and I'm I'm able to listen and take in what they're saying, and, and the thing that stands out to me most is not that they are right or wrong, but that they believe in what they are saying. It makes, it makes me wonder how I present what I believe, because believe you me, we are all the same in that sense. We all hold beliefs about not only who we are and who we ought to be, but about the world around us and the way it ought to be. I try to practice a sort of clinical detachment at times, as much as that's possible, for the sake of satiating my curiosity on the topic of identity. 
but I am in no way any less ardent about what I believe. To, to pretend otherwise would be disingenuous. Objectivity is somewhat of an illusion that our clinically oriented society has created in order to dignify and endorse our perceptions. Nevertheless, we have to draw the line somewhere and endless speculation and doubt are the opposite end of the spectrum of insanity. Why do I bring this up? Why have I droned on like this? Who could possibly still be listening to this episode, he asks himself in a dark and messy office. All this is to set before you the set of dilemmas that the next set of questions present. Where do we get our sense of identity from? How much of what we think about our identity is really an amalgamation of others' expectations of us? And how much do we suppress who we really are in order to gain acceptance from others? None of these are easy questions, and neither can they be addressed comprehensively in the short time we have together, but they are worth bringing to mind, I believe. We'll kind of work our way backward through those. I've been telling you about this book I've recently read, The Crowdsource Panopticon by Jeremy Weissman. In it, he argues that social media has at the very least exacerbated the issue of external pressure we face to conform to the public's sense of normality. This talk isn't explicitly about the downside to social media, but if you're familiar with my work, you know that I'm not a big fan, to say the least. But let's set aside the proposed amplification of the aforementioned phenomena social media poses and drill down on the basic tenets of the concept of external influences on our internal perceptions about ourselves. John Stuart Mill said this in his book On Liberty, quote, Society can and does execute its own mandates, and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right, or any mandates at all in things that it ought not to meddle, it practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since, though not usually upheld by extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life enslaving the soul itself. Jeremy Weissman comments on Mill's observations in this way, quote, If we become too subject to what other people think and other people try too hard to oppose their opinion on us, then facing these pressures, we may abnegate our choice and self-determination instead following the will of the crowd. Even if technically we have the liberty to do what we will without external restraint, we in a sense come to restrain and censor ourselves. And we've talked about this before. This is what we call social conditioning. We come to understand, some better than others, what is considered normal and what is considered abnormal. Now, social conditioning is a necessary aspect of human interdependence and cooperation. It is. But like many things in life, it has its place. And when the balance has been upset, we can find ourselves relegated to either the fringes of society, if not rejected from it entirely, or in what I would consider an even worse fate, we can find ourselves tossed on the waves of trends, devoid of any true introspection and addicted to the approval of our peers. Our potential hollowed out, leaving us shells of who we ought to be. Before I proceed, let's drill down on the difference of between who we are and who we ought to be. We will come back to it, and I, and I want to flesh it out a little more before we do. 
When I say ought to be, I mean what we are morally and ethically obligated to be. Morally, in the sense that there is a standard we believe exists. Ethically, in the sense that that belief has attached to it a certain set of behaviors that we are compelled to either exhibit or inhibit based on our moral framework. So what is normal and what is abnormal? That is the question. Abnormal, simply put, means away from normal. But how do we internalize what is or isn't normal? The reason why I think this is important is because we have an awful lot of people who seem to believe that the concepts of normality and morality are somehow interchangeable. I do not believe that they are. That's because I do not subscribe to the kind of postmodernistic thinking that has permeated our culture. That, that being the idea that everything is relative, subjective, that there is no fixed standard to which we are beholden. It is a tempting ideology in that it is one of limitless permissibility based on the consensus of those around us. There is a difference between peculiarities of personality and relative morality, though. We are entitled to our eccentricities, but only within the confines of a moral framework. Back to the question of normal and abnormal. I think it is important to acknowledge the need for diversity of thought. As I was saying, there is a balance to be had. Conformity for the sake of conformity is like change for the sake of change. It's nonsensical. Here's a quick value for value pitch to break things up. This endeavor is not something for which I'm paid. I do this because I'm compelled by something in me that wishes to encourage and inspire my fellow sojourners in this thing we call life. I do so without advertising because I want what I say to be as genuine as it can be. I hope that I provide something of value to you. If so, I humbly ask you to consider returning value in the form of time, talent, or treasure. You can make financial contributions to the effort through the links provided in the show notes to my Venmo or PayPal accounts. No sum is too small, or too large for that matter. You can also contribute through feedback by emailing me at subtlecane at protonmail.com. That's subtlecane at protonmail.com. If there are any producers out there that have their own endeavors which they would like to discuss with me, please reach out. I was overjoyed by the opportunity to speak to the guests I've had already, like uh, Froda, and hope that you've at least checked out his website, billgoats.com or thecorbettreport.com. I'm happy to entertain the idea of more interview ideas from producers. You are all unique and interesting people with something to contribute. Never doubt that. We are all unique and have value in that uniqueness. Let's get back to it. We all have peculiarities. Think of the home you live in now, of your private lives. Are there not many things that you do or that your immediate family does that you certainly don't do in public? doesn't have to be grotesque or deviant in any sense. Just things that, that make you, you. Sometimes I hear this tired argument, somewhat terrifying argument, that privacy is and should be a thing of the past. People say things like, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you shouldn't care who sees it. By the way, I literally heard someone say that once in a lecture hall while taking a class on 
ethical dilemmas in criminal justice. It was shocking when I heard it then, but I thought maybe it was just some poor kid who hadn't thought before he spoke, but I, I didn't realize that so many people actually believe that to be true. And it seems to me that that's more and more true as we move forward with all these different technological intrusions into our privacy. So why is privacy important then, Aaron? What kind of shenanigans are you up to that you need privacy for? Eh, nothing too exciting, I assure you. But the reason why I drifted ineloquently into privacy has to do with the influence that prying eyes have on our lives, on our concept of I. Because it's in privacy that we're able to set aside any concern for what other people think of us. And we can truly focus on answering that question of, who am I? Working backward through that list of earlier questions, we now ask, how much do we suppress who we really are in order to gain acceptance from others? I've spoken before about why I believe it's important to have a sense of meaning that transcends the trends. It's like a treasure map for our lives. Our meaning is what we treasure most. Our identity is a quest to fulfill whatever role we need to in order to reach the treasure. An imperfect metaphor, to be sure, but it at least brushes the edges enough to get the general shape and size. We shape our lives into what Eric Fromm calls a personality package. We present this package to the world for consumption and hope that the package we present is met with eagerness and acceptance. And you can see how this is amplified by social media, but it is something we do regardless of whether or not we use social media, just in our day-to-day lives and our interactions with people. You all know how I feel about the advertising industry, but we should take a second to consider something. In order to be a successful advertiser, you have to know your audience. You have to be able to not only guide them from where they are to where you want them to be, but you have to do so in a way that makes them believe it it is what they want. It's called manipulation. It's an active aspect of advertising in the sense that it actively attempts to persuade. But there's also the reactive sense in which advertising works. It's the concept that advertisers must react to the shifting trends and attitudes of the market in order to reflect them in a way that will be effective. The reason why I bring this up is because we are all advertisers of ourselves to others. We're selling our personality packages. But if we place our treasure, our full identity, in the effectiveness of our advertising campaign campaign to others, we will forever be chasing an ethereal mist that can never be caught. If we place our identity in something that is fixed, something that acts as a North Star in our lives, whether or not we ever reach it, which I don't believe we ever do in this life, we still have a fixed destination to which we travel. Our personality package does not have to be constantly updated to meet the demands of a shifting market. In the words of Weissman, quote, in the process of selling my personality, there becomes no stable self. Nikolai Berdyaev says this of trying to shape our personality to fit the market of the world. Quote, the greatest among men have always listened exclusively to their inward voice and have refused to conform so far as the world is concerned. How much of our lives do we spend 
endlessly toiling to meet the expectations of those around us? Do we place our treasure in the acceptance of others, hoping to placate the shifting dynamics that society presents to us? How can you ever know who you are if who you are is merely a reflection in the carnival mirror of society? Have you ever seen a cat chase the light of a laser pointer? It's quite amusing. I wonder if that is what we look like to God as we chase the acceptance of others. I don't know where your treasure is. I know that mine is in Christ, alone in Christ, as revealed through the Word and the Spirit. I am drawn to a fixed point that may be treacherous to reach with many obstacles and hardships which I have to endure and overcome to, in order to pursue. But I, And I often wander and get distracted in my journey, but the destination does not move. In that sense, my personality, my identity, has stability that would not exist apart from my faith. I feel compelled to to share that. There's no rational arguments that can bring one to faith. And I don't expect that this will convince anyone that God exists or that Christ is who he said he was. But I do hope, I, I do hope that at the very least, I've inspired you to ask yourself where you place your treasure. We are all on a voyage in the vast ocean of our lives. Are you sailing toward a fixed location, or are you chasing an elusive, drifting mass that is carried by the currents? I end with this quote by William James. Quote, Whenever two people meet, there are really six people present. There's each man as he sees himself, each man as the other person sees him, and each man as he really is. For all you listening, you are valued. You are loved, and you are worthy. God bless, and good night. There's no turning back once the fire's lit, let the embers Startled by my lack of fear as a world I love.